Tonight's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of Matthew. Um, Three sections, chapter 18, 1 through 5, and verses 10 through 14, and chapter 19, verses 13 through 15. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. The word of the Lord. Last time I was up here preaching was right after Christmas, and um, Dan was reading, and um, little Ruthie was up here then, too. Uh, I love that. And here I am preaching about children again. So in the House of Mercy this year, this liturgical year, we are taking um, children's stories about the Bible, and we are kind of taking a look at them and looking at maybe what we learned uh, from them and uh, maybe what we learned that's not so great about, um, or maybe we didn't learn such great things about uh, the church or about God from those from those stories. And maybe we learned some pretty great things, um, but we're trying to kind of look at them and reinterpret them. So when I think about children's stories, I grew up Catholic and um, we had the children's Bible, and all kinds of little storybooks. But I, what I remember most about the children's Bible stories in the New Testament is actually more of an image. And anyone who's my age in their 50s or older is probably going to remember this. Um, I don't know if you could see it too well, but it's kind of the iconic 1960s Jesus and children picture. Um, And that was really the thing that came most to mind about children's stories about in the New Testament about Jesus. Um, 
And I love this image. It brings me peace and it brings me comfort. And I'm actually really glad that pictures cancel out words sometimes. Because I don't know that the stories that I heard to go along with this picture were actually the greatest. In most of these children's stories about Jesus and children, there's often kind of a conflation of events. And I, had, um, I asked Emily to read just a few pieces because that's kind of what happens a lot with children's Bible stories is little pieces from different parts of the gospel get put together to tell a story. And then a bunch of other stuff gets added in. Um, <clears throat> and so all of these stories about Jesus helping children or blessing children are thrown together to show how much Jesus cares about children. Most of those children's stories that I found present children as the passive recipients of his healing or blessing. Jarius' daughter, the boy with seizures, the children whom the disciples try to block from Jesus. Most of the children's books that I read on this topic have the end message that goes something like this. Be good and obedient and do what your parents say and you will be blessed by Jesus. Jesus will love you. The thing that's not said is, what happens if you're not? The implications for the parent reading the story is also pretty clear. In the words of one lesson I found online, the section titled For Parents says, We cannot decide who will enter the kingdom. We cannot decide what will happen in the kingdom. We are not in charge. God is. We are to accept Christ's rule as king obey the laws of the kingdom, and honor our fellow citizens. Like children, we must humbly accept our place and do our best to please the Father. I don't know about you, but this is not what most of the children I know are like. Humbly accepting and trying to please. As I thought about this story, Jesus' love for children, I kept wondering if we're supposed to think about what we believe children are like or how we want them to be, or maybe we're supposed to attend to how they see themselves and experience the world. So last week at House of Mercy, I asked a bunch of the youngsters, what's the best thing about being a kid? And you know, the interesting thing about kids is that Even though all of them didn't know the answer or said, some of them said, that's a really hard question, they're all like, yeah, I'll help. Like, no problem, right? So the answers that they gave me basically fell into three categories. Learning, having fun, and being unencumbered. They said things like, or exactly, going to preschool, getting to learn, reading the Hunger Games, getting to do art and playing Pokemon, flying airplanes, or running for candy without having to worry about someone else is going to think about you. Not having to have a job or big responsibilities weighing you down. And when I asked them another question, what was the most important part of being a kid, again, the answers tended to focus on learning and fun with listening or being obedient not really hardly mentioned at all. (laughs) Not that these kids don't listen. I think that most of them do listen most of the time. 
what I'm getting at here is that I don't think that obedience or accepting our place is the defining feature of children. I think learning and fun, curiosity and playing, unselfconscious exploration, those are more of the defining characteristics of children. Children see the world from a fresh perspective. They've not yet learned enough to have biases, and their brains have not necessarily developed all the shortcuts, so they see things from different angles than adults do. They have what Buddhists call beginner's mind. They can see the simplicity in something that we as adults can make highly complex. Not that things are not way more phenomenally complex than we could ever imagine. I think maybe it's about holding on to the simple truths, even in the midst of complexity and confusion. Children are perfect just the way they are, and they're also always in process. They represent the best of who we are as people, and they can also reflect the worst. Because they're little, we give them the space to make mistakes and learn and grow from their experiences. And when they're at their worst, we love them, even if we don't particularly like them at the moment. I think this is so important for us to remember when we start to judge ourselves or we start to judge each other. Children also care about each, other's, each other and other people instinctively. Not just people in their families, but people everywhere. Children notice when someone is sad or hurt. They point it out in the park and in the grocery store and in the classroom. They want us as adults to do something about it, and they often try to do something about it themselves. I remember when I was working in a therapeutic preschool, and one of the kids, three-year-old, was crying inconsolably, and all the adults were like, ah, we didn't know how to figure it out or what was going on. And there was this little guy, also about three years old, and he was holding his blanket, the thing that comforted him the most. And he just walked over to this little inconsolable girl, and he handed her his blanket. Silence. It was so amazing. It made me almost want to cry. It makes me almost want to cry now. My sister is a Montessori teacher, and she has a peace rose in her K-1 classroom. <clears throat> the peace rose is to help children learn about problem solving and conflict resolution and how to use their words to solve problems and to solve conflict. Well, about three weeks into the, uh, into the school year this last year, one of the kindergartners had basically cried every single day, which isn't all that unusual. Kindergarten teachers have to have a little bit of a thick skin. Um, but so she had cried and cried and cried because she missed her mom and her little brother so much. And so one of the girls who was in first grade, who was in my sister's room the year before and knew about the Peace Rose, went to the Peace Rose corner and she picked it up and she brought it to the little girl and she gave it to her. And she told my sister, Mrs. Schubert, that's because I think she needs some peace. The kindergartner stopped crying immediately and didn't shed a tear again. She shifted into the relationships in the room. So every time I'm tempted to believe that I know definitively what any of these teachings is about, 
I get drawn up short. Because Jesus was a master teacher. He was trained as a rabbi. In the Jewish tradition, scripture is to be, is to be read with open curiosity about, about both what is written and what's left unsaid. He's always teaching on many levels at the same time. Jesus taught in ways that help people to open more and think more and experience more of who they are and who God is and what's real, or maybe what's really real, or maybe what's even realer than real. Every layer and level of his teaching intertwines and circles back through and around each other layer and level. I love that about his teaching. I'm a teacher, and I'm constantly trying to improve how I teach and to create learning that moves through and integrates multiple levels simultaneously. I think it's one of the things that draws me back to these scriptures over and over again. So what was Jesus teaching the disciples at this point in the gospel? He's teaching us, he's teaching about us, and he's teaching about God, and he's teaching about our relationship with God. He's teaching about the world of empire and about the kingdom. He's teaching about what we get lulled into thinking is important and about what is really important. In the scripture today, some of what Jesus is teaching is about the nature and importance of children, our responsibilities as adults in relationship to to and with children. How, as adults, we can be in and see the world and the kingdom. And he's also teaching about the nature of God and God's responsibility in relationship to us. Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This direction towards paying attention to being like a child also draws our attention to being an adult who is responsible for children. In a communal culture, certainly the one that Jesus was raised and taught in, every adult would be responsible for the health and education and the well-being of all the children of a community. The Hebrew Bible speaks repeatedly of the community's responsibility to protect children and to teach them about God. If we have had at least good enough parenting, if not as a child, then in a healing relationship as an adult, we soften and open when we see vulnerability. Young people or baby animals trigger warmth and a pull towards caring. I asked adults in this community what is important about being a parent or for caring for children in all the different ways that we do that, whether, we're, whether we have children or not. To which I heard some remarkably powerful responses. I feel so blessed to be a member of House of Mercy. It makes me feel grateful and humble to be in a community that feels and expresses these things about our children. Children teach us how to love better. They are a constant reminder that there is good and joy in the world. As parents and teachers and coaches, making space for our children to become who they really are in the world, to let go of who we want them to be or who we think they should be and allow them to grow into themselves. This is both the most gratifying and the most difficult thing that we do. We let our children make choices and make mistakes and learn and grow and become. I think that in this way we're made in the image and likeness of God. I'm not a fan of the belief that God creates difficulties or bad things in the world to tempt us or teach us or make us stronger. I would never do that to my kid. 
or to any of the kids that I've ever taught. I do believe that God can help us to meet the challenge of life with grace and dignity. That we can learn more about who we are from the bad things that happen or the mistakes that we make. And just as I can see the strength and resilience and gifting of my child or the students, even when they can't, I believe that God can see that in us, which we have not yet uncovered or grown into. The parable of the lost sheep, which could just as easily be called the parable of the attentive shepherd, is perhaps about the nature of God. Noticing that one of 100 is missing means that you have to be really paying attention. You have to be counting and watching constantly. Noticing every single one is an act of love. Being counted is an act of grace. It's about being seen, about mattering to God and to each other and to, in the kingdom. I once heard Rabbi Lawrence Kushner say, in God's world, we are minuscule, but never insignificant. I don't think God can do this without us either. We are wired for a relationship with the divine. God made us this way, to communicate. There's a field of study that's called neurotheology. Truly, there is. <laughs> They've recorded a specific place in the temporal lobe of the brain that lights up when people are connected to a sense of a loving, kind, spiritual presence or reality. And this is true regardless of theology. Buddhist masters and contemplative nuns light up in their brains exactly the same. I think this parable is also about our responsibility to take care of the last and the least and the lost just like it is the will of the Father in heaven that not one of these little ones would be lost. Jesus tells the disciples, do not block these children from coming to me. I think what he might be saying here is in part, what you think is important is not what is really important. I get so mad and so afraid and so hurt sometimes that I fight to be seen rather than stay in relationship. I think that what I'm doing is being true to myself. But what actually happens is just the opposite. I abandon myself. I become that which I'm fighting against. I want to stay connected in relationship even when I'm hurt or angry or sad. At these times, I can ask myself that question. Is it possible that what I'm driving down on here, what I think is the most important thing, is really not the most important thing at all? It seems kind of simple, actually. but I think that it can bring about a profound shift in a moment that I ask myself this question. Simple, like seeing through the eyes of a child. A few weeks ago after the Supreme Court ruling on marriage equality, my sister-in-law, who I love a great deal and who identifies as a born-again Christian, posted an article on Facebook. The beginning of the article was essentially, be like Jesus, don't get angry and aggressive towards people because of this ruling. Okay, I can get behind that. But then, all of the dogmatic verbiage about one man, one woman in the scripture and the main thrust of the article was essentially, when all the people who are hurt by this realize that they've been damaged, they will want to come to Christ for healing and then we'll be there. I was incensed. It felt paternalistic and unlike the Jesus in the scripture with which I'm familiar. I was hurt 
I kept going back and forth between being angry and wanting to fight and being hurt and wanting to cry. It was like a punch in the gut and I couldn't catch my breath. I posted to her that it was disturbing, to which she responded, I agree, as if we were actually seeing it the same way. Again, breathless. So I went back to the first premise, one that I actually agree with. Anger is not the issue here or the way to address this. What is important is love. So I said this. I'm referring to your posting it and how personally hurtful that is. We could discuss all day the difference in how we understand scripture. There are as many or more people who know way more about the Bible than both of us put together that disagree with your interpretation, and there are just as many that agree with how you see this. The truth for me is that you hold this belief about me and my family and my daughter, and that's personally disturbing and hurtful, and it saddens me greatly. I so wanted to argue and convince. I'm really pretty smart and I'm really pretty good at convincing people of things. And I've read many, many brilliant theologians on this particular topic. But what I knew was important was to stay with love and relationship because at base, I believe that this is what Jesus calls us to do over and over and over. So I left it at that and I prayed for my heart to be clear. A couple of days later, she texted me. I am very sorry for offending you. I am praying about that. I have removed the Facebook post. I would like to share my heart sometime. The point of the story here is that I did something different, which opened up a space for her to do something different. I let go of trying to control her. I stayed with my core value and let go of the outcome because that's not in my control and really actually is none of my business. We were able to connect in the space of what we both hold as core value and a core teaching of Jesus, that love is greater than fear or hurt or anger. I work really hard at not becoming that which I teach against. I think a lot about how to do this. What are the ways that we can practice the gospel? What are the tools and skills I can use to make this a living word, not just some instructions on a page or a set of rules to follow or dogma to believe? Part of what makes this possible for me is a daily practice of gratitude, meditation, and prayer. In my worst moments of becoming that which I most dislike in others, I have the opportunity to pause and turn to God for help to remember who I am and what is really important. When I'm most challenged by anger, hurt, or sadness, I will regress to that which with I, with, to that, that I'm most familiar with. It's simple neurology and learning theory. It's the way our brains are designed. If I want to do something different, learn something, it takes repetition and practice. When I have a daily practice, I have a better chance of defaulting to that behavior rather than getting caught in the intensity of emotion and acting out of that place. For various reasons, having to do with physical health and chronic pain, I typically do not sleep very well. A few weeks ago, I was awoken at about 11.30 and I never get to sleep before 11.30. By noise from the neighbors who were out on their front porch talking and laughing. These are kids in their 20s. I know that they were not trying to wake me up, 
and that they were not aware of how loud they were being. So I went down and across the street and I went to ask them if they would go inside because they were waking me up and I had to get up early. Essentially, they laughed and called me old and boring. Did I mention they were in their 20s? I told them if they wanted to play it that way, I could call the police. At 12.30, it happened again, and at 1.30. I went back out, and I was not a shining example of who I want to be in the world. I yelled, and I threatened, and I called the police. I told them that I would go to their house at 5 o'clock when I got up for work and ring the doorbell and continue to do so every half hour to see how they would enjoy that. At 2.30, it happened again. I called the police. I didn't really have any hope that it would change anything. I felt exhausted, in pain, trapped, and alone. My mind kept running revenge scenarios. I could call the city inspectors and have their property tagged. I'll go over there in two hours and wake them up, ringing the doorbell. I'll slash their tires. That was the point that I recognized how out of control I was. That was when the grace of God turned me towards my practice of meditation and prayer. I asked the Holy Spirit to come over my mind and heart and remove the rage I was feeling. I asked God to take the words of anger and curses out of my mouth. I asked to be reminded who I am and what I believe. When I awoke a few hours later, I felt no inclination to ring their doorbell. If I'm to receive like a child, what does that mean, to be childlike? Some of what it means, I think, is to be open and curious. To learn and to grow, to play and create. We are neurologically wired for connection and learning and to see beyond the mundane world of things, for relationship and integration and the divine. How do I know all that I know about what is wrong and destructive and painful in the world and still become like a child? How do I stay in beginner's mind? One very wise youngster right here at House of Mercy noted that childhood is a time to make memories for when you are an adult. Wow, like, hello people, you who are grown up. Reference the experiences of a child. This will help you when you're an adult. Children also remind us to live in this moment, that there is joy right here, freedom and beauty and fun. I can practice looking through the eyes of a child. I can ask myself these questions. If I was to see this with new eyes, what might I see? If I was to hear this, this thing that's making me crazy, with new ears, what might I hear? If I were to go back in this moment to what is really important, love, relationship, how might that change my perspective? my thinking, my actions. 
I can notice when I'm shut down to seeing or hearing the perspective of another and how that feels in my heart and my mind and my body. I can also pay attention to when I'm open and receptive and loving and how that feels in my mind, in my heart, in my body. Sometimes I just ask myself the question when I'm feeling particularly uncharitable, what would it cost me right now to be loving and gracious? We get a choice. We can physically and mentally step from the place of bondage to the place of freedom. Once we recognize freedom in our hearts, in our minds, and in our bodies, it is always available to us. It also helps to have regular reminders. 